0: Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church where we are one church meeting in 5 different locations and our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at oursaviorschurch.com. We are beginning a brand new series here in at the R. campus called The Life of Elijah. Everybody say The Life of Elijah. I'm so excited about this series. Me and our staff, our team, we've been talking about this series for months now. And I'm so excited because this is one of my favorite people in the Bible. This man is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. And some of you are familiar with his life, some of you are loosely familiar with his life, some of you have never even heard of him. That's okay. We're going to unpack his life over the next few weeks, and hopefully God speaks to you. I wanna tell you a little bit about this man, Elijah, before I really dive into our text this morning. Um, There's not a whole lot of the Bible space-wise that's dedicated to this man's life. We don't have any of his writings. He's he's in the Old Testament, but we don't have his writings like we do the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Isaiah, or there's books in the Bible, right? The book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah. We don't have a book of Elijah. He does not have, we don't have his writings, and there's not a whole lot of real estate dedicated to this man's life, but yet the impact that this man made on the world cannot be questioned. This was a man who was full of courage, he was full of obedience to God, and he was full of zeal for his God. And that zeal is going to, it's going to challenge you in this series That zeal is going to encourage you, it's hopefully gonna help you see things in a different light than you've seen things before. This man's life literally only takes up, the story of his life only takes up six chapters in the middle of two different books. So it does not take a whole lot of space, but this man was talked about in the Old Testament after his time, after, he's, after he died, and he was talked about in the New Testament. He's talked about in the book of Revelation. This man's life was significant. And so I want us to learn. Let me tell you a few things about his life before, again, we get in. The prophet Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament before we get into the New Testament. That prophet Malachi said, before the Messiah comes, Elijah the prophet is gonna come and lead the way for him. So he's talked about there. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are only two people who are said to have not died. One was a man named Enoch. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says Enoch walked with God and then he was not, the Lord took him. He didn't die, God just took him up. And the second person is this man, Elijah. And I'm not gonna jump too far ahead of that, but he didn't die, God took him. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a good thing. If you're wondering if that's good or bad, that's a good thing. He didn't taste death. God just sent chariots from heaven and said, bring them on up. I believe he was that close to God. Another important thing to know about his life is that in the New Testament, in the New Testament, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm giving you all a whole lot of background this morning because I want to kind of help pave the way for where we're going to go in this series. But this man, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples and Jesus' glory has appeared and it looks like he's shining and his clothes are super white, he talks to two men. And the two men that he talked to, the Bible says, was Moses and Elijah. This was a very important man in the Bible. This was a very important man in history. So I'm excited to dive into his life because this was no ordinary man. Now again, before we can appreciate Elijah's story, I want to take a step back. He enters into the scene of the Bible in in 1 Kings chapter 17, but I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 16 so you understand what's going on at this time frame and why he was even needed. Why did God even send this man on the scene? You have to understand the backdrop and the story of Israel and the history of Israel so you fully get it and you fully appreciate it. So can, can y'all give me that space to give you a little background this morning? Yes. Great, because I'm going to anyway. Yes. All right. First Kings chapter 16, verse 29. This is what it says. Ahab, son of Omri, now not Omari, Omri. Omri. Amri began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa, King Asa's reign in Judah. Now, some of you get confused about that. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But there were 12 tribes of Israel. Many of you know that from the Old Testament, right? There was the, the patriarchs of the Old Testament was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Israel had these sons that birthed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, these 12 tribes were united as one nation under King David. How many of y'all, you remember David? David killed Goliath. David had the slingshot, right? He threw it, he killed it. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. He united all of the tribes to become one sovereign nation, the nation of Israel. And then he had his son, who we've talked about in the last series that we did on wisdom. His son, King Solomon, was also the king over this entire nation, all 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. But then something strange happens. This kingdom that was this powerful nation, it was gaining momentum, it was getting stronger and stronger. It was strong under King David. It was, it was fairly, fairly strong, loosely divided under King Saul. It was united as one under David. It was even stronger underneath Solomon. But then something happens. Solomon's son was an, a man by the name of Rehoboam. Everybody say Rehoboam. How many of you are glad we don't name our kids stuff like that anymore? But Rehoboam, he became the king of this nation when the nation divided. And I won't go into all of the background and the story of that, but the nation divided. And you had two of these tribes together, and they called themselves the nation of Judah. And then the northern kingdom, that was the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom was the nation of Israel. They retained the name Israel. Israel. So you had the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in Israel, and the southern kingdom, you had Judah. Everybody said what I'm saying, Israel? Israel. Judah. Judah. So the capital city of of, um, Judah was Jerusalem. And that's where the temple was. And we talked a lot about the temple even in the book of Acts. That was the place where man went to meet with God. This is before the presence of God left the temple because there was a moment when he left the temple. But God's presence dwelled in this temple and that, this is the place where the nation of Israel came to meet with their God in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the northern kingdom, they appointed a king, or really God appointed a king, and his name was Jeroboam. That had to be confusing. You had Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Right, so Jeroboam became the king of the, the upper nation the northern kingdom and Jeroboam started off as a good king he started off as a godly king but then something happened and I'm going to get to that in a moment let's keep reading back to verse 30 what well, says he reigned in Samaria 22 years talking about Ahab but Ahab son of Amri did what was evil in the Lord's sight even more than any of the kings before him And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethabal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down and worship Baal or Baal. We're going to call him Baal just for the sake of doing this. But it says that he followed the sinful example of Jeroboam. What was the sinful example of Jeroboam? Jeroboam started off like a godly king. God appointed him to be the king of this northern kingdom, his very own people in Israel. But because the temple was in Judah, Jeroboam decided, I don't want my people going back there to those people because if they go back there with those people, they're probably going to realize God is here and they're going to start going back to the old king and they'll, they'll end up going with Rehoboam, so I don't like that. I'm going to set up my own place for them to worship. And when he started setting up his own place to worship, it was not sanctioned by God. It was not what God wanted to happen. And as a matter of fact, not only did he set up these two places for them to worship, but he did something so detestable in God's sight. He created two golden calves for the people to worship. And he said, This is the God who rescued you from Egypt. Now, if these two, if this calf, golden calf, sounds familiar, it should. Because when God sent Moses, I'm giving you a lot of history, but just track with me. We're going somewhere. When Moses came, went, delivered the people from Israel, really God delivered the people, excuse me, from Egypt, and he was bringing them into the promised land, That's, that was the expectation, that was the thought. He went up on a mountain to meet with God, and he heard from God, and while he was on that mountain, the people rebelled against God. And they got Moses' brother Aaron to set up a golden calf for them to worship, And when Moses came down from that mountain, he was so angry, he was so upset, God was upset. Moses literally destroyed the calf, ground it down into powder, threw it in water, and then made the people drink the water. How many of you think your boss is angry and heavy-handed? That thing was so detestable to God, yet fast forward all these years later, And this king, Jeroboam, does the exact same thing. He sets up these golden calves for God's people to worship instead of worshiping him. Are y'all tracking with me so far? You have this new king who sets up these false gods for God's people to worship. Now, after that, all of the rest of the kings of Israel did the same thing. Again, you have Judah, you have Israel. It's two separate kingdoms. And as you read First and Second Kings, sometimes that seems confusing because there's two storylines going at the same time. But they're talking about Judah and they're talking about Israel. And at times they overlap. Okay, but back to the story. In the kings of Israel, every single one of them after Jeroboam was a wicked king. And they all did. The Bible says they carried on the sins of Jeroboam. Now, these kings were wicked and they were evil. Ahab, the Bible says, was worse than all of them. That's saying a lot. That is saying a whole lot. And the Bible says that not even, not, not that it wasn't enough for him to do the sins of Jeroboam, but he went and he married this pagan woman by the name of Jezebel. I know almost all of you have heard of Jezebel. Most of you have called someone Jezebel. Men, can I just let you in on a secret though? When men come in, ma'am, I'm telling you, my wife has the spirit of Jezebel. You can't have a Jezebel without an Ahab, bro. If she's that way, it's because that's what you seeded because that's what you allowed. But that's a different message from maybe our marriage, count, marriage series. Now he marries this pagan woman and not only is he worshiping these golden calves, but he starts worshiping the pagan gods that she came from. She was, the Bible says, a Sidonian, which means she was from Sidon. And Sidon, they were a part of Canaan. So she came from the Canaanites. Who were the Canaanites? The very people that God drove out of the land and gave to Israel. So this king is going back to the old gods that were in the land before God drove them out What a slap in the face of God, What an insult to God to say, you gave us this land, you delivered us, you brought us into this land of promise. Now we're going to go right back to our old ways. The truth is, we do the same thing sometimes. God frees us, God delivers us, God heals us, and we go right back to, the Bible says, like a dog goes back to his vomit. We go back to our old ways. That's what this king was leading God's people to do. It was wicked and it was evil. Ahab was a wicked king, the most wicked king up until this point. Now, I said that saying a lot, let me just give you a little picture. I'm not gonna go back into their story. But the kings before him, they were bloodthirsty murderers, they were idolaters, they were corrupt, evil, wicked men, and Ahab was the worst of all of them. That's what's going on on the scene before Elijah shows up. He followed the the sinful example of Jeroboam. And again, what was that? What would you categorize that sin, Pastor Gabe? I'll tell you what it is idolatry. It was the sin of idolatry, worshiping other gods or false gods or idols. Now, before you say, whew, that's not us, Pastor Gabe, we don't do that. Really? There are some people in our world, don't get me wrong, they're still worshiping false gods. They're worshiping Buddha, or they're following Muhammad, or they're following these, the Hare Krishna, or these different pagan gods, right? There's still people that do that, but by and large, in our culture, that's not the norm. But we do have our own set of idols. We do have our own set of false gods. For us, more often, we don't worship, we may not worship Baal, but we worship sex, We may not worship these golden calves, but we worship money. Or worse yet, we worship ourselves. We worship ourselves. Our idols may look different, but they're still idols. If you don't believe me, this is what the, in the New Testament, this is what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians, chapter three, verse five. It says this, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking Within you, excuse me, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater. Worshiping the things of this world. When you worship, when you're worshiping yourself, let me me save that thought. I'm going to come right back to that. When we're greedy, it's a form of idolatry. We're making these things much more important than God. Therefore, we're making them our God. Are y'all with me? Yes. Another thing that we worship is us. It's ourselves. I don't know if you notice, and I've mentioned this, I think, in our church before. One of the core beliefs in Satanism, the religion of Satanism, is not worship Satan. It's worship yourself. That's one of the core beliefs of that wicked, evil Religion, it's worship yourself. Do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. There are no boundaries. There are no rules. You are your own God. Worship yourself. Because the the devil is smart enough to know you're probably not going to bow down to a, a statue of somebody with red horns and a pitchfork. But you'll bow down to that statue of you in the mirror. You'll bow down to your own image. You'll bow down to pleasing yourself over helping and pleasing other people. And he knows that. This is what the world teaches us. Worship yourself. Worship yourself. But there is a problem with worshiping yourself. When you worship yourself, you get mad when everybody else isn't worshiping you. When you are your God, There are no boundaries for you, you do what you want and when people don't allow you to get away with what you want to get away with, you're willing to kill them. How do I know? Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. Created this giant image and said everybody worship it and if you don't worship it, I'm gonna throw you in the fire. We do that to people all day long. If you don't worship me, I'm done with you. If you don't worship my image, I'll distance myself, I'll be angry at you, I'll slander you, all because you're not bowing down to worship me. This is the truth. This is what worshiping ourselves and these idols do in our lives today. Y'all with me this morning? I know this isn't fun, but I want you to, I want you to see what was happening here and even see where you can grow and change in your own life. Our land is still full of idolatry. It's full of self-worship, worship of sex, worship of money, worship of power. And I'll tell you what the true sin of our land is. Yes, it's idolatry, but even idolatry comes back to this. The true sin in our land today is rebellion against God. It's rebellion, absolute rebellion against God. It's every man trying to determine for himself what's right and what's wrong. We're saying that's wrong because it afflicts with our idolatry. We're saying I don't like that, that must be wrong because that hurts my precious infinite feelings. That's, that's the sin of our land today. Can I just go there with y'all for a moment? What's wrong, why, why is homosexuality wrong? Why is adultery wrong? Why is racism wrong? Wrong. Why is hatred and slander wrong? Just because it hurts our feelings? No, because God said they were wrong. That's why. Those things are wrong, not because I agree. People may ask me, Pastor, do you agree with that? What's your opinion? I don't have an opinion. What he says goes. He's God, I'm not. But we don't like answers like that in our society today because our sin is the very first sin. Eat the fruit so you can be like God. It goes all the way back. Eat this fruit, Eve. Eat this fruit, Adam, so you can be like God, knowing right from wrong. And I would venture to say even going beyond knowing right from wrong, determining for yourself what's right and what's wrong. That's the sin against God. That's the real problem with our culture. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Libertarians, whoever they are that you pick on. It's sin and it's rebellion against a holy God. It's God, I'm gonna do what I want. You can't say anything about it because I said it. Real sin in our land is rebellion against God. And the irony is that we want morality, but you cannot have morality without a moral lawgiver. The only reason we have morality is because God wrote out for us this is morality, this is righteousness, this is wickedness. And whether we agree with it or not, we have to bow our knee and submit God, you're right, I'm wrong. But even that, we don't like words like submission because it makes us feel like somebody else is more important than us. We don't like words like humility because it puts someone in our minds ahead of us. But those are the very things that God blesses. Those are the very things that God's want. That is the sin of Jeroboam. That is the sin of idolatry. Now back to Ahab. He marries Jezebel and he opens himself up, because he married her, he opened himself up to the worship of the same gods that she worshipped. She worshipped Baal. And he set up a temple to worship Baal in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel at that time. He set up this temple. Not only do you have these false fake gods from Jeroboam, these golden calves, but he sets up a temple to this pagan god, Baal, and says, Everybody come and worship. And because the leaders of the land were wicked, the wickedness of the land permeated into the people. Wicked leaders, wicked people. That's what happened. In chapter 21, I'm not going to go there, but if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Verse 26, it tells us that the worst thing that Ahab did was he worshiped the same God, he worshiped the gods like the Amorites did. Who were the Amorites? The people God kicked out of the land. Now, wickedness is running rampant. Evil, running rampant everybody is doing what they want to do. And to take it a step further, I'm not going to read this um, for the sake of time so I can keep going, but right after these verses, in the same chapter, at the end of chapter 16, it tells us the story of the rebuilding, under Ahab, the rebuilding of this ancient city called Jericho. Now, why is that important? This man named Ha'el rebuilds the city. And that sounds like a good thing, right? That sounds like good infrastructure. That sounds like we're rebuilding the land and we're making it better. Except for the fact that when Joshua brought the children of Israel into that, they dedicated Jericho to God. And they said, we're not going to build anything in Jericho because Jericho belongs to God. It's holy. It's the first. It's the tithe of our land. We conquered it first, so we're gonna give God first place and we're not gonna rebuild it. And Joshua even put a curse on anyone who would try to build in Jericho. And Joshua said, the man who builds in Jericho, his first son will die when he begins the project and his last son will die when he finishes it. Joshua said that. And this man named Hael in rebellion to God built that city anyway. And that's exactly what happened to him. His first son died. At the beginning of the building of the city, and the second son died at the ending. There is outright open rebellion against God in this land. And it seems like everybody's thinking God must be okay with it because he hasn't done anything about it. Don't we think that sometimes too? God is so evil, so wicked down here, I wish you would do something about it. God, I wish you would come and change this. That's what some of those people were thinking. Others were thinking. God, maybe he's not even real because he said all of the stuff that he would do if these things happened. He hadn't done it yet. And it seems like wickedness and darkness is winning. Until. And for all of us, I want you to know, there will be an until day for us. The world will do what the world is doing until, and the Bible calls it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And it was in this until that Elijah enters the scene. This great man, this great prophet who we don't know a whole lot about his past, but boy, we're about to know a whole lot about who he is. If you're thinking about Elijah and you're trying to picture him in your mind, this is what the Bible says in 2 Kings. It says that he was a hairy man. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. So just get that image in your mind. Some of you are thinking about your uncles right now. (laughs) Right in the middle of this wickedness, at Israel's worst point, God sends a voice of truth. God sends a man who speaks with courage and boldness, and he speaks the truth very courageously. Think about this. Even in the midst of all the wickedness that I just painted for you, the worst it has been in Israel's history since it's become a nation, God sends a man who's unflinching and unwilling to bow his knee, who's going to speak with boldness and courage to speak the word of God. Now, I want you to see this even for us. In our times, things aren't great. We all know that. But we often think, and I've had conversations with some of you, things are bad, Pastor, right now, things are so bad. Jesus must be coming back tomorrow. (laughs) Jesus has got to be coming back. Well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is, yes, he is coming back. The bad news is, none of us know when that is. And rather, God does not want us to have an escapist mindset. This is what the escapist mindset is. God, things are so bad. I'm going to build a bunker. I'm going to store up MREs. I'm going to buy one of those generators that aren't not going to work because we probably won't have gas. <laughs> or it'll be about $400 a gallon. And I'm going to sit back and we have this escape escapist mindset God protect me until the rapture so I can come away I can get out of here it's so bad God thank God Elijah didn't have that mindset his mindset was not that of an escapist mindset he had the mindset things are dark that's the perfect time for the light to shine when there's darkness and everybody's accustomed to that darkness that means if I light this match it's gonna look like I just lit up a city Because it's so dark, they don't have a frame of reference for this light. That means it's the time for the light to shine. When the lies are everywhere, that is the time to speak the truth. When everyone's believing a lie, that is the moment to lovingly but courageously stand on what is true. And without introduction, this man Elijah enters the scene. He steps in the forefront of history. We don't know much about his past. The Bible calls him uh, Elijah the Tishbite. Uh, Some translation says he's from Tishbe. We don't know which one that is. Tishbite in in the the Hebrew language means stranger. So it might have just been saying he's a stranger or it might have been saying he was from Tishbe. Well, what was Tishbe? It was in a, a um, a part of Israel called Gilead. And we to this day don't even know where that was. So it was so small and so insignificant that we don't even know where it was from. In other words, Elijah was from Potage. (laughs) Be honest, some of y'all have talked about Potage. You have no idea where it is. That's what it was like for Elijah. This man from nowhere steps on the scene. But I want you to see this. He doesn't have a political agenda. He's not trying to gain power and influence and acclaim with people. He has one thing and one thing in mind alone, the glory of God. The glory of God. He sees that of all the people that are being treated unfairly, the God of Israel is the main one. The God who created us all, who gave us this land, who gave us this nation, he is the one who we are rebelling against. He had God's glory at heart and God's glory at mind. This was a man full of passion, full of zeal for God. Let me ask you a question. Do we take time to think about how the things in our land and in our lives and in our families affect God? We often think about how it affects people. More than that, we think about how it affects us. But do we ever think about how it affects God? Do you ever think that when I do this sin, I'm not just affecting myself, I'm not just affecting that person, I'm affecting the person whose blood was shed so that I don't have to do that anymore. Having that mindset that God, is this pleasing your heart? Or is this grieving you? Because the Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when you feel that deep sorrow and sadness over your sin, it's not condemnation, but you feel that grief inside of you. You know what that is sometimes? The grieving of the Holy Spirit inside of you because of what you've done. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. This man had God's heart at mind, God's honor, God's, God's love, all of those things. He had that in mind when he had absolute zeal and passion for a holy God. And he comes out of nowhere. Let me just say this, because I just mentioned his Well, let me just say this. His name literally means Jehovah or Yahweh is my God. Elijah means Jehovah or Yahweh is my God. His very name meant that. I'm here for God. I'm here for God's honor. I'm here for God's pleasure. I wish we lived that way. God, I'm here for your honor. I'm at my job to honor you. I'm loving my family to honor you. I'm saying no to that sin to honor you. I'm fulfilling the call of God on my life to honor you. As a matter of fact, we look forward to the reward in heaven one day. The Bible says God is going to give us a crown for everything we've done. But you know what the Bible says we're going to do with that crown? We're going to lay it down at Jesus' feet. Because everything we've done pales in comparison to what he did for us. We're going to lay it at his feet because we have his honor at heart. Church, this is how we are called to be. This is who God has created us to be. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. He said, you are a city, and I'm talking to you. I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about ancient Israel right now. I'm talking about you, Thibodeau from St. Martinville. You were created to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You were created and born again to be the salt of the earth. We use that word, you're, there's salt to the earth. And what we mean by that is, there, that's a good guy. I mean, that's a nice lady. That means the salt of the earth is something Jesus said, and it means so much more than that's a good guy. What does salt do? In ancient times, salt was a, a it was, a, it, I'm trying to think of the currency. You would pay for, you would pay for things with salt. They used it for the same thing we use it for as well. We put it on food. They would flavor their food. But it was also used as a preservative. Because they didn't have refrigeration back then, so they would get meat and they would pack it with salt. Why? Because when you packed it with salt, it would slow the breaking down, the corruption of that meat. It preserves. So when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, what is he saying? You are slowing down the corruption of the world because you represent me in the world. That's what he's saying. Church, we are the preservative. We are the light of the world. Me, I'm just trying to be good and not sin. Yes, You. You're called to so much more than living your life on the defense. You're called to live on the offense. You're called to bring this truth, God's very righteousness and justice into the world. That's who we are. So Jesus said we are. Let's get back to Elijah. Verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1 says this. Now Elijah, who was from Tisbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, pause. Elijah from Potash is walking into the courts of the most powerful man in that nation, an widely known, corrupt, murdering idolater. He walks right up to him and says this, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, not the God we serve, the God I serve. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. That took some courage. That took some boldness. And that's exactly what he did. He walks up from nowhere and confronts this man. We don't know anything. The Bible doesn't tell us Elijah was raised this way. He was raised to be a prophet. All we know is he came from nowhere. And next thing we know, he's confronting the king of a nation. And And for many scholars, they believe that is a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus came from a little unknown place called Nazareth. They made fun of where he was from. He came from nowhere, yet he confronted the prince of this world and won. This man, Elijah, comes and he does this. And when this moment came, all of the false gods that they served were exposed. Because they had no power to change what Elijah said. Because Elijah served the one true God. All of the fake and false gods that we worship have no power. They can't change anything. And when the day of the Lord comes, it exposes that. Let me just say this. How many of you remember when COVID actually hit, all of the things that we used to think were so important paled in importance to us. We realized just how insignificant those things were because they had no power to change us. had no power to change our circumstances. And what did we do when COVID hit? Father God, please come help us heal our land. Why? Because we recognize who was really in charge. That's why. Now the Bible tells us Elijah comes up and he confronts this king And the Bible tells us later on in the New Testament how long this drought lasted. Now, this drought was, he said, no rain, and then he went over and above, no dew. Because when it didn't rain overnight, the dew would come, and it would moisturize the vegetation in the land and would allow crops to grow. Elijah said, none of that. No rain, no dew until I give the word. And the New Testament tells us how long that this famine lasted. Luke chapter four, verse 24 says this, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted to Jesus in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years. And there was a severe famine throughout the land. No rain, no dew, three and a half years. You go to Katy, Texas right now, there's signs up telling you don't burn burn bands because they haven't had rain or maybe they just started getting it but a few months without it. This was three and a half years without it. No crops. What do you feed your animals with? Those crops. This was affecting everything. Their economy, their health, all of it under God's judgment. This judgment affected it all. And this man stood with courage before this king and this wicked nation, and he said, Until I give the word, Ahab, you're under God's judgment. How was he able to do this? And I'm going to be brief. This is just the introduction. You don't want to miss this series. Please keep coming. What made him so courageous and so bold? If you're taking notes, write this down. He had been with God, he had been with God. We don't know where exactly he was from, but we know who he was with while he was there. He was with God. And this is important for you to know your public life is only the tip of the iceberg. Because your public life, the thing everybody sees, is only the tip of the depth of what happens in your life in private, both good and bad. How do you have faith? To see God move in public because you've spent quality time with God in private. How do you have faith to say to someone, I believe God is going to heal you because you've spent time with God in private, hearing the heart of God that he wants to heal them. Your private life is what determines your public life. And we live in a day and time where it's so inverted. We want everybody to see our highlights on Instagram and social media and our character is so shallow behind closed doors. We want everybody to think that we're, we're awesome and our, our marriage is perfect and our kids always listen, although no kids always listen. We want this to happen and this to look this way. But we're not putting in the work behind closed doors in our private life. Elijah did. He heard from God. He spent time with God in his private life. He had been with God. And because he had been with God, he was able to go public with his faith. The fact that today is Baptism Sunday is so ironic to this message because The people who got baptized today. Baptism is not the thing that saves you. I hope you know that. I told them that behind closed doors. You can go into that water, a sinner, and come up a wet one. It is the going public of the faith that's already happened privately. It's like when you get married. And I've said this one, I know, many times before, but just bear with me. Humor me. When you stand on a stage or at the altar of a church and you put that ring on one another's finger, that's actually not the thing that marries you. How do I know? Because I've done wedding ceremonies and forgot, they forgot to sign the paper or I didn't send it off and legally they're not married. <laughs> I apologize to you if you're sitting in, a, I'm joking. Uh, none of you are here. That is the public sign of the actual commitment that's made, the actual covenant in the marriage that's made. And this ring says to everybody that I belong to that woman. Water baptism says to everyone, I belong to that God. That's what it does. So they went public with their faith. Elijah went public with his faith. He already had it. God had already done it. God had already worked it in his life. But he went very public with that faith. My encouragement to you is to go public with yours. Do you go public with your faith? Do we allow ourselves to speak the word of God to others? Or do we allow Jezebel to keep us fearful and silent and intimidated? Because that's what Jezebel will do. Shut your mouth. Don't you dare tell anybody about Jesus. Don't you dare tell anybody that you're a faith. Go to church, go to your little small group, that's okay. But don't share that. Everybody will think you're weird. We see it on TV, we say that. But that is the very thing that people need to set them free. Are all of them going to receive it? Of course not. But many will. Many will. And I can tell you, most won't if they don't hear. How can we hear without a preacher? Someone proclaiming that word, that truth. Do you go public with your faith? And I'm gonna share briefly with you what to share before I close, but let's keep going. Elijah went public with his faith. He also spent time with God, getting to know God in prayer. Elijah knew exactly what God wanted. He was a man of earnest prayer. The book of James talks about Elijah as well in the New Testament. Elijah chapter five, verse 16 says this, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Verse 17, Elijah was a human as we are and yet he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall. None fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. What happened? Elijah went to God and prayed, God, shut the sky for your glory. And because he prayed that prayer earnestly, God heard him and God shut the heavens. And there was no rain for three and a half years. Now, don't go home and start praying over St. Martinville. New Iberia, God shut the heavens. Let's have a counseling session before you pray that. But Elijah did and God heard him. Which leads to my second point before I close. He knew the will of God. Why could he pray so earnestly? Why could he pray with such passion? Because he knew what God's will was before he even prayed it. He knew that his prayers were only lining up with what was already in God's heart. How do I know that? Because in Deuteronomy, God had already said that. And Elijah most likely knew that. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, this is what it says. This is when God was bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt before they even got into the promised land. The Bible says this, God said through Moses, If you carefully obey the commands I am giving you today, if you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and your soul, then he will send the rains in their proper seasons, the early and late rains, so you can bring in your harvest of grain, your new wine and your olive oil. He will give you your lush pasture lands for your livestock, and you yourselves will have all you want to eat. Verse 16, but be careful, don't let your hearts be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship others, other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain and the ground will fail to produce his harvest. Then you will quickly die in that good land that the Lord is giving you. How could Elijah be so bold? Because he already knew this is what God promised. How could he pray that prayer? Because he already knew that's what God said. When you want to pray with faith, know what God wants. How do you know what God wants? Read his word and he'll tell you. You can have faith and confidence in prayer when you know he's already said, that's what I want to do or some of you when you hear that whisper of the Holy Spirit this is what I want to do Father I pray that that happens in that person's life God I pray you save them God I pray you heal them God I pray you deal with them in their sin until they repent you pray the will of God that's what made him so bold and so courageous do you spend time getting to know the heart of God and the word of God so that you have confidence when you pray. And my last question, and I'm closing. What are you sharing? What do you share? Elijah could speak boldly because he knew God, because he knew God's will, because he experienced God. What do we share with the world? Our experience with God. I love going walking into Albertson, seeing people who got baptized in our church church months ago with that shirt on that says, I got baptized today. Seeing social media posts with people taking those pictures and say, I went public with my faith. I want you to know what I experienced with God. That's what we share. I was this way. Then he saved me. Now I'm this way. That's what we share with the world. I was speaking with a man online from, he's a Muslim believer. And we had a very, probably two week long conversation. And he's going back and forth, what about this in your Bible? What about this in your Bible? What about this in your Bible? And I was we were giving him scriptures and all of those things. And, and one moment I said, and I'm paraphrasing, here's essentially the difference between the two of us. You know about your God. I know the God in whom I believed. I don't just know about him. I don't just know things he said in a book. I know him and I've seen him move and I've seen him work. That's what you share with people. A man with an argument is always at the foot of a man with an experience. Share what God has done in your life. Go public with your faith like Elijah. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for every believer in this place help us give us that boldness and that courage like Elijah to care about what you care about in our land today to go after the people that no one cares about and no one talks to to go after the people that seem so high in mind and that they're intimidating for us to even talk with because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world greater is he that's in us than he that's in them Help us be willing to boldly and courageously speak the word of the Lord. To be able to call right, right, and wrong, wrong. Not because we have an agenda. Not because we're on either side, quote unquote. But because we're on the side of the Lord. Give us that courage. Give us that boldness. And I thank you for those who came forward today and were baptized thank you for the things you did in their life.